It's not either you're for the side of good or you're for the side of evil. All humans are fallible. All humans make mistakes. What a good leader does is have the humility to admit the mistake, have the humility to say, I made a mistake and here is what I am doing to correct it. Here is why I realized a mistake was made. Here is why I will not be making that mistake in the future. We need to get better as a nation uh, at tolerating our leaders changing their minds about things. Uh, we really hammer people who change their minds about something. We we view it as a moral failing. If somebody used to say this and now they say, you know, they used to say X and now they say Y, well, what kind of a flip-flopper are you? When in reality, what kind of a narcissist are you to think that the opinion you held 25 years ago doesn't need to be re-examined? Hello, beautiful damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. On this show, I talk with people living meaningful lives, people who give a damn. Thank you so much for showing up today. I'm so incredibly glad each and every one of you are here. If you love this show, hit subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. It would mean the world to me. Friends, I'm so thrilled to introduce you to my guest today, Sharon McMahon. Leading up to the presidential election in the United States back in November, friend after friend after friend would send me Instagram posts and stories from Sharon's account. It happened so many times. Sharon was fielding simple and hard questions alike and answering them in very direct and in surprisingly nonpartisan ways. In other words, she was sharing straight up facts. I started following Sharon and knew really quickly that I wanted to talk with her more about her story and about her journey from being a high school government and law teacher in Duluth, Minnesota, to being a warrior of sorts, fighting against disinformation and misinformation on the internet. Her rise to internet stardom happened really quickly. She went from relatively no internet presence at all to, as of this recording, 626,000 followers on Instagram. Sharon created the Government for Grownups course. She hosts the forthcoming Government for Grownups podcast, and she continues to serve her internet community on a daily basis. Sharon has appeared on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, CNN, Upworthy, The Washington Post, The Today Show, and now the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. It was so helpful and so life-giving for me, and I hope it is the same for you. Before we jump into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from each and every one of you. And now let's get right into my conversation with the incredible and charming Sharon McMahon. Let's go. Sharon, welcome again to the podcast. <laughs> I'll explain to everyone what that means here in a second because I want to, not that they need to know, but I want them to know how amazing you are for doing this oh. twice, really, just to get the one conversation out. But welcome to the podcast again. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to do it. Of course. So for everyone just listening in, we recorded about a month ago, maybe, yeah, about a month ago. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a great conversation. Uh, obviously, just like super impressed with you know who you are, what you're doing, finished it up. And I 
some something fucked up all the audio. Like it was all messed up. Like all of it, hers, mine, everything got messed up. Some <laughs> something got in the system, and I was, I mean, I was probably I was probably a really bad sight in my office, all by myself, just screaming to myself because this whole ninety minute conversation was gone. But <laughs> I wrote to your team. You were so gracious to say yes. I'll do it again, which is just so so nice oh, of you. No worries. So I'm I'm so happy to have you back. Um, I, I, I'll say this. I said it last time. I want to say it again, that when I said that I was going to have you on, I have all sorts of people on this show, very well-known people. And when I said I was going to have Sharon McMahon on, America's government teacher, they know you from Instagram, people went crazy. They were like, we love mm-hmm. Sharon. Uh, she's taught us so much this year. She's been so helpful. So mm-hmm. um, I, I've loved sort of, coming into your world through, you know, Instagram and seeing, you know, not just, not just benefiting myself, but also seeing the people in my, you know, friend circle in my community also just admire what you're doing so much. So thank you you for the work that you do. Thank you. Of course. Let's uh, begin with some sort of pleasantries. I want to, again, it's been, it's been a week, it's been a month since we've talked. How are you doing? We're still the, the pandemic is still around. You know, I, I think there are some shifts happening. People are getting vaccinated. There's variants we have to worry about and be, you know, cognizant of, but things seem to be shifting a little bit, but we're still mm-hmm. in the pandemic. So how mm-hmm. are you doing? How are you feeling? Oh, well, physically I feel great. Good. Um, so I'm not, you know, like haven't had, haven't been sick. So that's been fantastic. You know, 2020 has been, it was a challenging year for everybody. Um, but it is really nice to see light on the horizon. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that just knowing that you're not in a cave, you're in a tunnel and that there's an end at the light at the end of that tunnel just feels different mentally. It also feels different mentally that we're not heading into this long winter that we have here in Minnesota, that we're coming into warm spring, spending time outside the return of daylight, you know, like it doesn't get dark at 4 PM anymore. So all of that, I feel like are just really positive, positive changes, positive shifts for me. Uh, tell me about your family. Who who have you been spending this year with? Who have been the people that have kept you uh, relatively sane through this year? <laughs> that makes a lot of presumptions about my about Fair the enough. fact that I am mentally sane. No, just teasing. Um, no, I have four kids. I have a husband, so that's you know keeps me really busy. Um, it's also nice that I live near my family, I live near my sisters and, and mom, and so it's been it's been good to have each other. We haven't been too isolated, so. Yeah, can't complain. That was uh, one of the challenging things about this year was um, my wife's family. We live in Nashville right now. We're moving in a month, but we live in Nashville now. And her family was three hours away. Mine was eight hours away. And the family eight hours away, love them to pieces. It's my family. But many of them uh, weren't taking the pandemic as seriously as we were. Mm -hmm. Um, And so all that to say, it's been coming up on a full year since we've seen them. And mm. it's been tough because like super close to them, love them to pieces. They're amazing. Um, I'm one of 12 kids and most of my siblings live, you know, near my, where my, they've all migrated. None of us are from the South, but they've all migrated to North Carolina and they all live close to each other. And we're over here with one other of my siblings. And it's been hard because sure, we've had our little bubble of people, not, you know, one brother or two brothers, but you know, other people that are our neighbors that work from home and we could 
still do, you know, backyard picnics with them and stuff throughout this year. But it's been hard not being around family as much because that's a whole mm-hmm. different that's a whole different thing, right? Like, yeah. it's good to have friends and neighbors and community. But if you have a good, not everybody has a good relationship with their parents and, and right. siblings. But if you do, you want to be near them. You want to see yeah. them more than more than once a year. Once so, a year, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm glad you got uh, more of that than I did, and hopefully, again, hopefully we're turning a corner and I can we can start visiting uh, more of them more yes. often. And you're in, yes. if, if I remember correctly. Duluth, Minnesota. Duluth, Minnesota. Yes. We talked last time about how we lived in Minneapolis for four <laughs> years. Mm-hmm. Love Minnesota. Uh, miss it a lot. Did not love the winters or the summers. <laughs> so I didn't like any of the weather except for the three weeks of fall, the three weeks of fall. But boy, let me tell you about spring was pretty cool because, you know, even when it hit, you, you know, spring in Minnesota, right? If it hits 30 degrees, right? If it climbs to 30, people are putting on their t-shirts, oh, win- yeah. windows down on the car. It's not Absolutely. even, it's not even freezing temperature yet. And people are just like, you know, yeah. raising their hands to the sky, thanking all the gods for just this warm 30 degree weather, right? Mm-hmm. So spring is really special there because it's you're coming out of five months, six mm-hmm. months of just intense, bitter cold. And then, yes, autumn only lasts three weeks or so. It's very short, mm-hmm. but I've lived all over the place and I love Minnesota autumn. Oh, like, it's the best. It mm-hmm. is so, I mean, it is so quintessential. It's mm-hmm. so perfect. Um, literally, I mean, I love autumn anyway. It's my favorite season wherever we live because it's, I mean, it's just generally beautiful everywhere. The The temperature's perfect, you know, the uh, go apple, you know, what whether it's, you know, picking apples or pumpkins, you got the, all that stuff going on. It's just perfect. Yep. But yep. Minnesota was so fun. We still have this memory of, um, well, the the Minnesota fair also takes mm-hmm. place in, in mm-hmm. during, during that period when it's cooling down from summer. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's the best fair to go to in, mm-hmm. in the world. But also, um, we've been to a lot of like apple pumpkin orchards, you know, over the years with, with now that we have kids, we go to them every year, wherever we live. And there's yeah. one, uh, apple orchard that we still think about from, I mean, it's been 10 years since we lived in Minnesota and we still like all of our memories. When we think about perfect autumn day, it's mm-hmm. back to that, that oh, orchard. So we've just got yes. like really good fond memories. But I think it even gets colder. You guys even get it worse than Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the cold. Yeah. I live right up by Lake Superior, which is, you know, uh, three quadrillion gallons of water that ne- barely ever makes it above 40 degrees. So when you are blowing breeze off of a 40 degree lake, it keeps it nice and nice and chilly. It's naturally air conditioned in the summertime. So yeah, so what is like the top temperature in the summer? Because summer in Minneapolis was always, it was hard because it, it got quite fairly hot and most, but it didn't get hot enough for all the houses to have air conditioning or no. like working air conditioning, right? No. So we had to, I mean, all, every house we lived in, I think during our four years there, we moved four times in four years because we're ridiculous, but every house we had to have window units in mm-hmm. and that was terrible because there always, mm-hmm. there's always parts of the house and parts of each room that didn't get cool ever, yep. you know? Yep. So what, what, what is like the top temp, you know, the kind of like top temperature in the summer? It, there? it, I mean, there is always, 
um, a week or two where it's like 90 degrees, 85, yeah. 90 degrees. And those are, you know, like the miserable two weeks of the year. And most houses here are older built, you know, turn of the century into the forties. So most of the houses where I live do not have central air conditioning. So you would need like a central, or you'd need like a window unit or one of those wall units. Um, and you just kind of sleep in front of it for two weeks a year, or you hurl yourself into Lake Superior which yeah. is also freezing. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So yeah, people don't realize that this is not actually the Arctic, that it does get very hot and humid here in the summer for periods of time, but most of the summer it's like 75 and you know, um, it's just very pleasant and beautiful on the North shore of Lake Superior in the summertime. I had a friend when I lived in Minneapolis, an old, an older guy loved him. And he was telling me when he was growing up, that there were some summers that he remembers though, that uh, he says he remembers one summer and it was like 60 years ago where he said, growing up in Duluth, it snowed on the 4th of July. It snowed <laughs> on the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. So just wild weather is what we're looking mm -hmm. at, right? Yes. Like because, because it's so far North, because you're right on a lake, a lake that mm -hmm. as you pointed out, never gets warm ever mm -hmm. for any reason. Mm -hmm. um, do you ever... Have you ever thought about leaving or is it like, no, this is, it's hard, but it's home and family's here. Or have you ever thought about like just getting the hell out? <laughs> well, I've lived in California and I have lived in DC. And so I've lived in more temperate climates and I've lived in a, you know, the DC area is very, very warm. Yep. It, it does snow a few times a year in the winter time, but it is, it is very warm from, you know, May to November. Yep. So I've, I've lived in places where it's not as extreme as here and they all have great things to offer. You know, it is really pleasant to not have mosquitoes like in, in California, that's very pleasant, yep. but I, I really did miss, um, I think it's kind of fun to have extreme weather as long as people are not actually in danger. I love a good thunderstorm. I love a good blizzard. Uh, I find California weather a little boring. Very. <laughs> it's, it's a little boring for me. Um, but I really love that beautiful fall, which they don't have in DC. It's like you yeah. go back to school and it is ugh, like the, somebody sold you a bill of goods like this, this sweater ensemble that you purchase for back to school is not not working. It's still 90 degrees. Yeah. So, you know, I just, I missed those lake views at Duluth is a unique city in that it's perched into the side of a hill, kind of like San Francisco is. Yep. And so you have views of Lake Superior from all over the city. And in fact, some of the best views are from the poorest neighborhoods. The, the wealthy neighborhoods in, in Duluth do not have lake views, generally speaking. And which is, kind of the opposite of how most of the rest of the world is. If you can see this beautiful vista of, of water, you're living in an expensive neighborhood. So anyway, all that to say, you can see the lake from all over the city. And I really missed just cresting that hill and seeing that expanse of blue and not having that, you know, not having that kind of like gatekeeping aspect of like only the wealthy are allowed access to the beaches, you know, that kind of a, a mindset. So I missed, I just missed a lot of things about home. Um, the, I would like to shorten the winters. If I could, I'd like to have winter be done in March. That'd be great. Wonderful. But, but it's not up to me. Turns out. <laughs> I mean, you've lived all over the place. I've lived all over the place, you know, the United States and the world. There's no perfect mm -hmm. climate, right? You have no. to just, you have to figure out what's most important to you. That's right. And for you, it's like those lake views and other mm -hmm. things, right? And obviously family and all that. I know exactly what coming over the hill you're talking about. I've been mm -hmm. to Duluth 
It's gorgeous. I would never live mm-hmm. there, but mm-hmm. it's so gorgeous. It's it so, is. so, so beautiful. We also don't have traffic other than like road construction traffic. And so sure. that is a huge quality of life issue. You know, like it used to take 45 minutes to go four miles when we lived in DC. And yep. here it's like, if something is four miles away, you can reasonably assume it will take you less than 10 minutes to get yep. there. Yep. So that, that to me is a huge plus of living in a smaller community like this. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have, um, for lack of a better term right now, coming to my brain, you have risen to fame over the past <laughs> year. Um, and you've become as your Instagram bio says America's government teacher. <laughs> I don't want to get quite there yet, but I would love for you to take us on uh, a, a journey from how did you get there? Right? Like what, what were the steps that took you to the place where, when you decided to do something about it last year, uh, cause it was last year, right. When you mm-hmm. decided yeah. to take this all seriously. Right. So we're not talking a long time ago. Mm-hmm. What were the people, places, and things that made you into who you are today and really who you were in 2020 when you said, I'm going to do something about all of this misinformation and disinformation and lack of, um, of knowledge about these things that we should all know about, that we should all learn about, but most uh, uh, people don't ever, don't ever <laughs> get, get to that level of knowledge for one reason or another. So take us on that journey. Well, you know, I mean, I suppose it starts in adolescence when I found myself in an 11th grade social studies class, really fascinated by what was going on in the world. And I had a really fantastic teacher who, you know, really ignited this, this interest for me. And so I started taking some of my babysitting money and buying uh, newspapers and a Newsweek subscription and just paying closer, closer attention, caring more. And I wasn't raised in house that, you know, my parents watched the news and whatever, but it was not an overly, you know, overly political household. It was probably pretty normal amount of news consumption in my house. Um, but for whatever reason, I just found, found it incredibly fascinating. So I went on to become a government teacher, high school government and law teacher, spent a long time doing that again in California and out in the DC area, Twin Cities area. And so Throughout all of my time doing that, of course, I got married to somebody who has a PhD in political science. And so that was, you know, like that idea that iron sharpens iron when you're around it on a daily basis, it really keeps your skills sharp. Um, When you have somebody in your household who can actually uh, intellectually challenge you, it makes you makes you want to rise to that occasion. Your choices are either to just be like, listen, I know nothing. That's all on you. Or you're going to have to bring your bring yourself up to their level. So that has helped in that even when I wasn't actively teaching government in a classroom anymore, um, that I never lost my curiosity about it, never lost my interest in it, never lost that kind of sparring partner that I've always had. And my husband, Chris, is a multiple time national debate champion and has, you know, competed in debate at both high school and college. He's coached debate. So he is a very, um, he's a very intellectually curious and challenging person to be around. So that has, has, you know, my debate skills have improved since we have, you know, I, I'm naturally that, you know, disposed to wanting to have those kind of conversations and then be living in a house with somebody like that has made it more, uh, has just increased my ability to spar with somebody like that. 
and his, his knowledge retention of things that are, um, you know, obscure facts are just like, well, how do you even know that? So his, we don't have perfectly aligned, uh, political interests in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, like what he loves to talk about and what I love to talk about, they're slightly divergent, uh, but we do have a lot of common ground and what we both find interesting. So anyway, all that to say, I started, I've worked in multiple businesses. I've always been very entrepreneurial, you know, I'll spare all the gory details of what I've been doing for the past few years. It's just running my own business. Yeah. And, um, starting in about September of 2020, I started seeing specifically on social media, a lot of misconceptions about how the system in the United States is actually set up, how the election system is set up, how the electoral college works, what would, what the possibilities are. This is really where I started seeing, like becoming frustrated with that's actually not a thing that can happen. Mm. What what you are saying is likely to occur is not even remotely possible because here actually is what the constitution says. Here is what the what the actual federal laws are. So to me, I decided rather than engaging in these one-on-one fights with people saying you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong because I could have spent my entire life just having hand-to-hand combat with wrong people, um, I decided to just start making some little short, simple explainer videos that that went over things like, here is how the electoral college works in a way that was, you know, like that I would have explained it to a group of 16-year-olds. So accessible, break it down very simply, easy to understand so that it is not this, most people, frankly, are not willing to commit to a two-hour documentary about yep. something. You know what I mean? They just want, like, can you help me understand this a little better. I don't need to know everything that has ever happened. I just need to understand it a little better. So when I read the news or I see I'm watching Fox or CNN, I, I feel like, okay, I get what you're saying. So I discovered that there was not very many, there were not very many resources for people who just want to feel more confident in their knowledge who want to understand the actual facts without being told what to think about them. You know, like I can say here is what goes into this, um, this fish tacos that I made you right. Like here are the ingredients. Here's how it was prepared. And then you can tell me if it's good or not, Mm. like go ahead and taste it. Tell me if it's delicious, whether or not my fish taco recipe is delicious. That's up to you. But there was just really a lack of people explaining how I, how we make these fish tacos, what the ingredients are without telling you if they are delicious or not. There's too many, I found too many people screaming at you from every single angle yep. about what to think. Here's what you should be thinking and not enough people give equipping people with the tools of how to think about important and nuanced issues. These are very nuanced issues that we have through, you know, reductionist thinking made into black and white, bad versus good, you know, evil versus the saviors of the world. That's really not a useful way to think about most of these things. and. 
anyway, that's my long, my long answer of how I got where I am. I just started posting nonpartisan fact-based information that didn't tell people what to think about things. It just gave them tools to, to learn how to think about them. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very true as I've looked at, you know, the, the, I don't know if you keep track of how many stories you've shared, but it's, I mean, thousands, <laughs> thousands, 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 right? Yes. It's very much, um, <coughs> just as you pointed out, it's just the ingredients. It's just, here mm-hmm. are the facts. This is, these are, these are not up for debate because I'm, I'm giving you in the most, I mean, maybe the most like nonpartisan kind of explanation I've ever heard. Cause it's so hard to do that. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's why that is why your platform has grown is because whatever you've learned, maybe it was just you and your husband sparring for so many years or whatever the case may be, you have learned how to, I don't, I don't possess that. I, <laughs> I, or I shouldn't say I don't possess it, but I'm not good at it. And I haven't strengthened those muscles. Like it is very clear when I talk about the police, when I talk about income inequality, when I talk about the prison system, when I talk about COVID, it is very clear in 12 seconds flat, you'll know exactly where I stand on the issue. Sure. I just, I'm not in the position you're in, right? And, right. and, and that doesn't mean that I shouldn't continue to hone and continue to you know build up that muscle because you're obviously doing things that I never could because of how you have how you're pitching stuff. But it's clear that it resonated with people, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you said, September 2020. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we're talking in seven months. When you and I talked last month, um, you, it was like 580 thousand followers, and now it's 615 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that is just that's tremendous growth. And and again, people in the comments are not. They're not mad at you. They're not <laughs> upset with, they're, they're not arguing with each other, right? There's no, no, no. There's, there are probably very few fuck yous in the comments no. because again, there's no, fi- there's the point wasn't to, you know, give, uh, and, and I'm not even, I'm not even saying that's all bad, but the point wasn't to declare what side of the aisle we're on, mm-hmm. on an issue mm-hmm. and say like, Hey, this is what we're pushing for. Obviously there's going to be contention in the comments and in the sharing yours. It's like, Oh, like I learned, thank you so much. I needed that. I needed that. <laughs> I needed that equipping so that I could go out and talk more intelligently about this so mm-hmm. I can make better decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, before we go any further on this though, I don't want to lose, I, I was fascinated by the you sharing a little more in this conversation about your husband um, and his sort of expertise and stuff. So let me, let me go back there for a second. Mm-hmm. A couple practical things and a couple that'll really apply to what we're talking about. One is, Talk to me about how long have you been to, how long have you been married? Uh, 20 years, 20 years, mm-hmm. 20 years of sparring, mm-hmm. 20 years mm-hmm. of dialogue, 20 years of going back and forth. How, how deep does the d- debating and the conversation run through like every part? Like, you know, cause there's different parts of marriage. There's like the, the really important, heavy stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's where should we go for dinner? And then there's, this is just a difference of opinion. We shouldn't even be fighting about this. Um, there's all these different dynamics. So how does that like play out? And, and I had another fasting conversation with, so I had a conversation with Annie Lowry. She's an economist, writes for the Atlantic. She's amazing. And then I had a conversation with, well, I want to have a conversation at some point with Ezra Klein, her husband, mm-hmm. her partner. Mm-hmm. Both of them are really smart. Like when you were mm-hmm. talking about your husband, I was like, oh, this is a similar, I'm sure there's some similarities here. Like I asked when I was talking to Annie, like, what, what, are the, 
what do you guys talk about at home? Because <laughs> Ezra's spooky smart. He knows a little bit about everything. Mm-hmm. And he has just a great podcast. And Annie's really deeply smart um, on the economy and otherwise. And so talk to me about the dynamic in your marriage, because I, I think there's probably in ways in which your 20 years of marriage, not just your own personal bent toward learning and wanting clarity in all those things, but also the sparring with your partner that you have sharpened each other again, to the point where you were prepared (laughs) to do Mm -hmm. what you're now doing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's a little bit like, you know, I, I, I say that what we're, what I'm doing right now is a little bit like, uh, being told that you are representing your country in the surprise Olympics. And you don't, you don't necessarily, you had no idea the Olympics were coming, but you realize that you actually have been training for this moment your entire life. So, um, one of the things that is maybe unique to our relationship is that we do, you know, like when we have a difference of opinion about something like politics, um, there's no animosity attached to that. We Mm. can have a very heated argument about, you know, how he feels about X issue and how I feel about Y issue. And at the end of the conversation, it, it doesn't feel personal to us. You know, like we do have personal fights, but when we're, when we're sparring about something related to politics at no time, am I'm like, this guy is a loser. And I hate the way he thinks about this. Um, it's not personal to us. We, we can have a heated discussion without feeling angry afterwards. And, you know, one of the interesting things about being a debater is that you have to be able to passionately argue both sides, because when you show up at the debate, you don't know which side you're going to get. You have to prepare for both. They're going to, you know, coin toss, who's going to, who's going to argue which position. And so Chris is a master at that sometimes maddening, maddeningly. So where you, you know, he is arguing with you because he enjoys arguing with you and not because he actually believes what he is, what he's saying. Um, he will, he absolutely does that. And sometimes it's maddening, uh, to, especially to our children where they know that's not what he thinks, but he's doing it because it's fun to him or because he wants to sharpen their own, uh, debate skills. And I remember talking to a friend recently where, um, you know, we were talking about how our, one of our kids wanted to do something and I had told them, no, you can't do that. This is like pre COVID. And he wanted to go to Minneapolis to go to a a concert. And I was like, no, you're not driving down there alone to go with your friend. No, you're not going. And Chris was like, well, what arguments did you use on mom? And our son was like, well, this one and this one and this one. And he was like, well, maybe you need better arguments. And, and so I was telling my friend this and she's like, so you're teaching your children how to argue with you? Like what? That, that idea that you uh, teach your kids how to be better arguers is one that is not very commonly, most of the time parents want to have this authoritarian relationship where it's like, I'm the parent, I say no. And that's my natural default is to be like, no, you're not going. Yeah. It's all of our natural default. No, you're not doing that. That's ridiculous. Um, anyway, it, I do think ultimately it will be an incredible life skill for our children that they are being forced to be, to come up with 
what are the best argue, my best arguments for X. And by argument, I don't mean we have to fight about it. I just mean my, what positions give me the strongest, the most compelling evidence that I should be allowed to do this, or that this is the right way to think about something. What are my most compelling arguments for whatever the topic is at hand? So I think think you might be, I mean, (laughs) I don't want to take the conversation this way, but that might be a book that needs to be written by, you, you know, a joint venture because I know like, so I, I am like your husband, not, I have not, a, I have not won awards for arguing, but I'm really damn good at it. And I like doing it. I like doing it with as many people as possible. Not even like, even when it's not that serious of a thing. Why? Because I feel like I'm getting sharp and I'm getting better at it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm becoming it's more. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a skill in like mm-hmm. any skill, which is a muscle sort of thing. You got to like, you got to pump iron. If you want to be strong, if you want to mm-hmm. be a good debater, a good arguer, you've got to practice it over mm-hmm. and over and over again. That's right. And it's very frustrating for, you know, and there's contention at, at certain points, but I think there's some, I've never thought about it this way with the kit with kids art. So yes, you p- rightly pointed out the default for parents is I, I said, no, I'm the parent. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. done. It's over with. So that's not the tactic we take in our home. I mean, I'm not saying we haven't done that, but we we try to beat that down and don't use that. But we also don't teach them to argue well. We talk very, like we treat our kids like the intelligent kids they are, mm-hmm. and we have conversations, but we're also not really teaching them how to argue their point, which will make you a better, if your kid comes to you and says, hey, I know I tried these arguments, but I really want to go to the concert. Let me try a couple more. Yeah. You're going to be a better m- mom after that is done, regardless of where it lands, <laughs> if they try a couple better slash different mm-hmm. tactics. So I wonder if there's something here around like teaching your kids how to argue with you, mm-hmm. but to do it well, because they're going to need to do that for for uh, in political conversations with their friends to get that job raise that they deserve, that their boss mm-hmm. doesn't want to give them to get some internship fellowship, you know, yep. to start a project, whatever it is, arguing mm-hmm. is a very important part of life. And it's not arguing like screaming right. and name calling. They right. our kids know that that actually that's just going to get this whole thing shut down. Like if you start in with the screaming and the name calling and whatever like then the answer is a hundred percent. No, right. Like goodbye. Cause can, can you imagine any scenario in which you go into your teacher's classroom or your boss's office and, you know, start screaming and yelling and the boss ends up the conversation being like, this has been a good talk. I'm giving you a raise. That's not how that works. No. So the, when I say arguing, I don't mean screaming. I mean, bringing your best positions, your best reasons forward and presenting them in a persuasive manner. That's what, you know, a debate is. It's, it's the art of persuading somebody with evidence. What's your best evidence for why you should be allowed to do this thing? And how can you persuasively convince me that it's in your best interest to do that? And, you know, sometimes there's give and take involved. Like if you let me do this, I will demonstrate to you that I am trustworthy by putting in all of these safeguards. Like I will call you 30 minutes out from the venue. I will, you know, like I will send pictures of me and Connor 
doing this thing that will let you know that we're safe. You know, like that, that all of that is also an important, it's an important reasoning skill of anticipatory planning. What will somebody need to feel confident that I can do a good job at this and anticipating what those things are and then putting all that into place. That's an incredibly useful life skill. It turns out that makes you really great at your career of being two steps ahead of your boss or a college professor. Here's what I'm going to need down the road to make mom feel comfortable with this decision. You can apply that to a lot of things in life. And we see a fundamental lack of that in really all areas of life. I've seen more of it than ever in the last five years for very obvious timeline reasons. But there's a lot of the bad kind of arguing happening. Oh. The the faithless, um, I don't actually give a shit about you, but I'm going to. In other words, like nobody knows, you know, the rule of thumb as your husband, a a, a award-winning debater knows, that's why you go in with both arguments is because if you can't articulate the other side of the position, you have no that's right. You have no reason to be arguing your side if you don't know, if you can't articulate their position, right? That's correct. Absolutely. And you don't understand the issue. You don't understand you the cannot, issue. You cannot passionately argue the other side. You don't understand the issue fully. Yeah. No, 100%. Mm-hmm. And we've seen so many bad faith arguments made. And I think social media, the, the wonder of the wonder of your rising platform is that you have sort of um, surpassed or kind of gotten out of this like very toxic, you know, (laughs) environment where there are certain things that I would never say to your face, even if I, even in bad faith, even in bad faith, I think Sharon is terrible, but I would never say that to her face. But (laughs) if I can get on some anonymous account online (laughs) and Sharon says something about X, which I disagree with her on, well, then I can just blast her. Mm-hmm. She'll never know it's me. Mm-hmm. She, or even or even if my name was attached to it, it's a lot easier to type it out on a keyboard, right? Oh, absolutely. So we have this incredibly toxic environment. And t- talk about let's 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 get back on track here with your with your account and the kinds of things you share. Um uh let's talk about, let's spend some time here on misinformation versus disinformation, because this is obviously something that we saw we saw a lot of mis and disinformation mm-hmm. over the past five years. Mm-hmm. It's very unfortunate that we have, there's always the tendency for social media to be used poorly, but mm-hmm. we have really, really used it poorly over the last five, six years. I include it. I, I am uh, nothing if not honest and vulnerable and just lay all my cards on the table. I have like not used these platforms super well. I try and I think I'm getting better, but it's been tough. When you do see a lot of bad faith arguments being put out and you do know that you have the, that you believe based on facts and data that you're on the right side of this issue. Mm-hmm. And yet there's just so much out there and it's overwhelming. You can't, you can't actually, you can't make a dent in moving the conversation because mm-hmm. there's so many people with so many opinions. So talk about the, this rise of misinformation, disinformation, the difference between the two and how your platform um, specifically around government and politics, um, has shifted the conversation over the last few months and, 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 and therefore kind of gained, kind of risen in popularity. Mm. 
Okay. So the difference between mis and disinformation is that misinformation is, doesn't necessarily have an intentionality attached to it. Disinformation is I am purposely going to mislead you on this topic. Um, I am purposely going to put wrong information out there in an effort to bolster my cause or to detract from the position of somebody else. Misinformation is, I view it as much more prevalent. Most people actually don't even necessarily have a negative intent. Most people have the have an intent of, well, I just want to be safe. I just want to warn people. I just want people to know what is really going on. They don't have an intent to harm. They right. believe that they're helping. Right. But in but in doing so, they are perhaps perpetuating uh, a falsehood, maybe unknowingly. Mm-hmm. They're perpetuating wrong information unknowingly because they don't have an actual understanding of what the what could actually happen, what is actually happening, what is possible. Because of that, because it's confusing, because government is nuanced, purposely complicated, our our American political system is purposely complicated. We invented a complicated system on purpose. So because of all of that, it can be very difficult to ascertain what is really going on. That in addition, coupled with this idea that there are some actors out there in the world, by actors, I just mean people acting in a certain way, who speak in very convincing, compelling, and authoritative tones. And when you say something authoritatively, people tend to believe that you have authority on the issue. And, you know, I could go online tomorrow and start talking authoritatively about uh, biomedical engineering or about astrophysics, two topics of which I have zero training or actual authority on. But if I say it convincingly enough, it can make you, it can make it seem as though I do. And so you, I could very easily start a misinformation campaign just as a, just as an experiment to show people what would happen. Um, I'm not going to, but I, but Thank it would you. be very easy to do because right. I understand the mechanics of how misinformation happens. So, because it's complicated and can be difficult to fact check, it can be difficult to um, differentiate the real from the fake. It just, and then it just makes it easy to virally spread misinformation, being like, I like it. I agree with it. I agree with that. Reshare. I, Love it, reshare it. That oh, that is for sure true. He is absolutely a jerk. Reshare. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, just that like share button has created this this viral misinformation. And as much good as as exists with social media, um, it, it it's just a tool. It can be used, the tool can be used for good, just like a hammer can be used to build a house. A hammer can also be used to do inflict incredible damage. Mm-hmm. Um, the tool of social media is very, very powerful. We seem to lack the ability and in, in you being a teacher for so many years, an actual teacher in school and now a teacher in different ways, we seem to lack the ability to sift through information. We seem to lack the ability to go back to primary sources, mm-hmm. right? Talk about that for a minute. Like, does that start 
are, are is is our is it our education system? Is it like what is it? Where does this start? Uh, that you know eventually breathes a generation of people that are so given now maybe and if this is true push back on me like maybe this is all people through all of time mm-hmm. but I can't I don't it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like that again misinformation always has always existed disinformation has always existed mm-hmm. but it seems like in in different periods of time where you had to really work hard to learn. And you had to sacrifice something to learn. You had to learn how to read, maybe, uh, you know, uh, in circumstances where that wasn't really a thing. And you read books and you devoured them and you wrote and you had to really discern more. And now everything's just so easy. Everything has come Mm -hmm. so easy. Like I don't have to, I don't have to learn, like any kid coming up right now doesn't have to learn math. Like just forget math class. I'm not saying they should, but like you could forget it altogether because in a year or two, they're going to carry a device. Even in their preteen years, these kids are getting mm-hmm. phones, and it's all right there. Even if mm-hmm. the calculator can't figure it out, they just Google it. What yep. is what is five trillion times blah 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 blah? And boom, they've got the answer. Mm-hmm. No work needed. So it's becoming easier to be stupid, to be dumb, to be <laughs> to be foolish, and you can get by still. You can build a business. You can build a life, not actually having the capacity to sift through information to get to the right stuff. Mm-hmm. So how do how does our education how do how do we raise a generation of children that don't make the same mistakes that we're making now cuz it's going to get easier to do that. Like technology's not going to go back. Things no. are going to get smarter. Right. Um we we have to actually type it on our phones or speak it into our phones. Maybe they get to just think it and it appears, you know, in 10 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. So how do we keep, how do we, how do we maybe not fix it, but how do we move forward, you know, raising young people that we want to have an impact on the world, mm-hmm. but they're just surrounded by so much shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's important to understand a few things. Okay. One is that you're absolutely right that the internet has created, made it easier to do certain things. hundred yep. percent. Um, on the other hand, we are living raising children through the information age, Mm -hmm. which has never existed in the entire course of human history before, where we are literally being um, assaulted with thousands and thousands of pieces of information on a weekly basis that never used to happen before. So I don't necessarily think it's that our kids are getting dumber. I think they are being presented with amounts of information that are exponential Mm. beyond what anybody has ever been expected to take in and process at any time in human history. My grandmother was not expected to find primary sources about tweets. Do you know what I mean? She had no, she had no expectation of like, well, let me sit, comb through the data. Let me, let me find the find the statistical analysis. Like that was not an expectation of our grandparents that they do that. Um, One of the reasons was because obviously social media didn't exist. 
And you had a reasonable expectation that what was being printed in a newspaper or broadcast on television, you had a reasonable expectation that somebody had taken the time to fact check that and they were presenting you with fact-based information. You had a reasonable expectation that when you opened the newspaper in the morning and they told you about what was happening, what kind of battles were happening in World War II, that, that that was actually based in fact. You know, like the newspaper wasn't printing random conspiracy theories from a dude in his basement. You know what I mean? On a very practical level, because it was so much work to get it out. Yes, correct. Like the amount of number of people that it had to go through to make it in the paper, you had to pay to print it. Like it had cost money to print it in that newspaper and you had to pay to get it at your house. And now it is literally misinformation is literally being beamed from space into our hands instantaneously that is, that is literally what is occurring being beamed from space what i jokingly refer to as the space to face pipeline there you go <laughs> being, i like that be, beamed from space uh, into our hand and then into our face without even trying like yeah. the notifications on your phone like I, i'm not even trying to get the news and it's telling me what there is to know so because of that It's not that our kids are getting dumber. It's not at no time have humans been been tasked with existing in a society in which we are expected to personally sift through thousands and thousands of pieces of information and ascertain the validity of that information on a a weekly basis. Um, Nor have we ever been able to share it quickly and easily, nor have we, um, nor have our we ever decided that our personal moral character is based on our ability to sift through information that's being beamed from space into our hands. It, it's, it's an experiment that has never been tried before. So our kids maybe don't know as much about, um, you know, how to use a card catalog right. <laughs> as I did, but they're also, you know, like I also was not, um, my, my adolescence was not documented on Instagram or Snapchat. Mm, yep, yep. And and navigating that is beyond challenging. That is something that most adults, you know, 35-year-old plus adults would if you said, "Would you like to live your adolescence have that documented on social media?" 100% would be like, "Hard no." Yeah. I am really grateful it wasn't. Yep. So, we're asking a lot more of our children than we, you know, than we had to deal with. That's super helpful. Super wise. Um, yeah. I mean, I, we have tried to keep our, our, we, we have tried really hard to give our kids a little bit of this new technology at a time, very little, Mm -hmm. very slowly Mm -hmm. from screen time, you know, just this past Christmas, they, we, we got them iPods. Mm-hmm. Right. They only get them. They only get them for three one hour periods a week. And mm-hmm. there's only certain things they can do. They can listen to audiobooks. They can text their aunts and uncles. They can, you know, uh, they can draw. There's like a drawing app. They can do things. No social media, none of that stuff. But but even so, they're getting there's every once in a while they're on some, you know, we're gonna build a community game, like a game, and mm-hmm. some some ad pops up on there. They're like, what's this? Don't mm-hmm. click it. Cause it's going to take you to something else. And they're just trying to get you to there's even, even in our very calculated, slow mm-hmm. sort of evolution, mm-hmm. introducing them to technology, 
they're still getting faced with things that that are, yeah, if there's no way to stop it, right? Right. And yep. e- yeah, even as as calculating as careful as we're being, you can't stop it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a great that actually, I don't think we talked about that last time. That's super helpful because I I want to believe that there's so much hope for our young people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I already feel that way. I feel like the young people will save us because they have. <laughs> They have less to lose than ever before. They're not as concerned with wealth and riches and like, you know, their 401k. They're they're more concerned with like doing the right thing and finding causes they believe in. And so I'm I'm very hopeful that way. And now we just have to train them, you know, and point them to uh how to sift through all of that correctly. Right. right? And here's the thing is that most adults haven't been trained. Right. That's the hard part. Most adults don't know how to do this. So it's really difficult to be like, okay, 12-year-old, here's how we locate primary sources. Like I I have thousands of adults asking me on a weekly basis, how would I find this information? So if adults don't know it, what kind of, you know, like we, we have no business being in a moral high ground. I'm not talking you specifically. I'm no, talking about yeah. adults in general. Yep. Um, when we are the problem, yep. we are literally the problem. It's, yeah, kids, not, it's kids, not our kids. They it's us. Sh- they didn't share the disinformation and the misinformation no. throughout the election with the no. votes and the pandemic and COVID's a farce. That was all grown-ass adults. Adults, adults are the problem today. So talk to me about it, and, and I want to move on from this, but I also don't just yet. Uh, we'll do that in a second. But like this, this notion of if I hear do your own research one more time, my head might explode <laughs> because really what, what that means, anybody that says do your own research, I have found what they mean is they're just out there looking for, I mean, it's just confirmation bias. They're just yes. looking for, they're not looking for the truth. They're, they're looking, looking for, for information to support their already to, held beliefs. A hundred percent. So yes. how do we, how do you uh, as you're building this platform, how do you train? Uh, it, it, maybe it's not even active training, but how do you point people in the direction of don't talk that way? That here, here's a better way of approaching. Here's a better way of making sure that we're not speaking out of, shouting out of, arguing out of confirmation bias, but rather the truth. And how do you find mm-hmm. that in this in this day and age? You know, because there are so many adults that are spreading myths and disinformation. How do we before we start going and telling our kids how to live, <laughs> how do we make sure that we're not just searching for, you know, things that confirm our bias and we're actually mm-hmm. seeking for truth, even if it shoots down our argument? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it it requires you to work on yourself. Yeah. And it requires you to acknowledge the fact that um, facts don't require my approval. It can be a fact even if I don't like it. Sure. And that that feels uncomfortable. Uh, that's human nature for, for that to feel uncomfortable. And so to acknowledge that it feels uncomfortable for me to say, I don't, I really do not like these facts Mm. at all. Um, it's, you know, therapists refer to it as distress tolerance. Distress tolerance is a, it's, it's feeling uncomfortable feelings and tolerating their presence without trying to dissociate from them and without trying to run away from them. And Mm. a lot of times what people who get, get off in the weeds in a variety of ways, maybe it's addiction, maybe it's conspiracy theories. Maybe it's like, how do you even believe the earth is flat? I don't know. Um, what they 
actually have is an inability to tolerate any amount of distress. And that distress tolerance muscle needs to be strengthened and it can be strengthened. You can work on building that distress tolerance feeling of, I do not like this. And yet I am uh, bound by the physical limitations of this earth. You know, like we have physics, can't laws of physics. It is what it is. You know what I mean? Like I can't, can't make myself not bound by the laws of gravity, even if I, even if I don't like it. So practicing this idea of uh, sitting with an uncomfortable feeling that you don't like, and this is, this is true of a variety of things in your life. It can be related to politics. It can be related to hearing bad news about a family member, you know, whatever, um, not disassociating and running away from those uh, negative feelings helps you become more objective of, you know, you can more easily, like I, I, I feel like one of the things, uh, teaching and being married to Chris has taught me is a high level of distress tolerance that Mm. I can, I can look at this and be like, I do not like that at all. And then just let it be that thing that I don't like. Wow. You know what I mean? Um, it doesn't mean that I don't try to create positive change in the world because I do, but when I read something that happened in a newspaper, let's say it's somebody that I I, a politician that I really like, let's say I, I really, I feel like they're out there fighting a good fight. They're trying mm-hmm. to do what's right in the world. And I read something about them that I don't like instead of trying to say, well, it's wrong. It's a lie. Whoever said that is garbage. They're just out to ruin them. You know, I investigating whether or not that actually is the case, whether this thing really did happen. And then just sitting with this idea that like, yeah, um, humans are, human beings are by nature, um, imperfect and flawed and sitting with that feeling of, I do not like those facts, but it doesn't make it not a fact. One of the, you know, again, I'm, I am politically left on, you know, pretty much everything, but so I, I hit that, I hit that Biden Harris you know, button as, as hard as I could, you know, on, on election day, but this Punched is one of, I, I literally, I literally like smashed it down as hard as I could, Been waiting four years for it. But so my side of the aisle, I mean, for four years and rightly so, I'm not saying this is wrong, called our former president out on every allegation of sexual assault. Every time there was, you know, bad behavior that was revealed and called him out on it, and rightly so. That man, in my humble opinion, should never uh, have been pre- president, let alone any type of leadership position. Oh, but then sexual allegations come out about the current president, right? And I think Biden is doing a much better job on a number of levels, right? But we can't, right? There's an uncomfortable thing. Mm-hmm. These are these are allegations from real people. It takes a lot for survivors to speak up. I know this. I know many survivors. I've worked with them for years. So I have, I believe them. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with that? Do I ignore that and say, well, just because my guy, it's my guy. So I'm going to ignore that, right? Like we can't do that. We, this is where integrity comes in, right? This is where humility comes in to say two things can be true at once. Doing yes. a better job, more people focused. We're getting shit done. 250 shots in arms in just over a hundred days. It's amazing. Like we're, we're getting shit done and these things can be true. And at a certain point, accountability, you know, needs to step in and maybe something needs to be done. Right. But we can't say, well, it's not that big of a deal 
because it's my guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, but the other guy, he needs to go to prison for, you know, the the rest of his life. Like that mm-hmm. is a that is that is why we're in the 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 this the mess we're in is because we lack what you just described. We lack that. Like on both <laughs> all across the spectrum, from the highest levels of leadership all the way down, we lack this ability to be able to hold those things in tension. Life is very, very rarely black and white. It's mostly gray. We're all, there's so much nuance. I am, I can be simultaneously a good husband, a good father, social activist, building all this stuff. And if some shit comes out about me, I want you to believe it, especially if it's, you know, if there's survivors and like, I want you to take it seriously and not take it seriously just because you like me. You know what I'm saying? Like that is such an important part of getting in these conversations. And if there's an argument to win, winning it is not saying, well, that's not true because it's my guy or my girl or whatever. Right. Yeah. The idea that, um, it's not, it's a logical fallacy to say either this candidate is good or this candidate is good, or this candidate is wrong and this candidate is right. It, it's not an or. Things can be and. Both and, both and. Yes. I say it all the time. Yes, and somebody can, Trump can do something wrong, and additionally, Biden can do something wrong. Yep. It's not, it's not either you're for the side of good or you're for the side of evil. All humans are fallible. All humans make mistakes. What a good leader does is have the humility to admit the mistake, have the humility to say, I made a mistake and here is what I am doing to correct it. Here is why I realized a mistake was made. Here is why I will not be making that mistake in the future. We need to get better as a nation uh, at tolerating our leaders changing their minds about things. Oh, yes. Uh, we really hammer people who change their minds about something. We we view it as a moral failing. If somebody used to say this and now they say, you know, they used to say X and now they say Y. Well, what kind of a flip-flopper are you? When in reality, what kind of a narcissist are you to think that the opinion you held 25 years ago doesn't need to be re-examined? That you were right when you were the age of 22 and your rightness has not wavered at all over the last 25 years based on new evidence, based on best practices, based on how the world has changed. It's actually incredibly narcissistic to think that you were right a long time ago and nothing has occurred in the world that could make you change your mind. Yeah. When in, that rethinking is actually the sign of intellectual maturity. Yep. It's intellectual infancy to think that you were right one time and nothing ever can change your mind from that holding that position. We need to get better at saying, actually, thank you for carefully thinking about this issue. I appreciate that you are willing to say, I have rethought, I have changed my position on that. And here's why that actually is humble leadership to not think you have every answer that has ever existed. I mean, we could spend, we won't, but we could spend two hours on literally two hours on the last five minutes of what you just shared. Mm -hmm. That might be, and I'm glad we're sort of, you know, climaxing the conversation on that and nothing else, because that is so important. Parenting, uh, business partnerships, politics, Mm -hmm. everyday interactions with 
we have to, and, and, and we won't, we won't get it. There's just not enough time to get into cancel culture versus accountability and all like that whole conversation. Mm -hmm. So many people and, and no one, no one gets canceled. Like or very rarely do people get canceled. Even when you call it cancel culture, like it's just not even really a thing the way that we've described it. But we look at somebody's tweet from 12 years ago. We look at somebody's whatever from 12 years ago. Forget even changing your mind. We fuck up. We make mistakes. Humans make mistakes. So 12 years ago, I probably said stuff that I don't mean at all. And I'm so sorry I said a thing or did a thing 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And again, we need accountability. If somebody was hurt as a result of the thing I said or did 12 years ago, hold me accountable. Hold me accountable. But if it was something I said, like mm -hmm. the Bible talks about the tongue being a fire, right? Like it, it can give life and it can also take life. It can destroy and we need to have so much more grace for each other because really it's a sign of intellectual uh, like growth and maturity, but also your time's coming. If you're so hell bent on calling everybody mm -hmm. out on the stuff they messed up on yesterday or 25 years ago, your time's yep. coming. There are skeletons it's in your closet. It's coming and it's coming bigger. Yeah, because if you it's show- It's coming bigger because you've had no grace for anyone else. If you right. show yourself as someone who can be reasoned with and like, oh, they changed their mind. Cool, let's go along with it. They're, they've changed their mind for better. Great, I support mm -hmm. this. If we do that, when our time comes, people will, I think by and large, treat us the same way. Like, oh, this is a very gracious person. Let's be gracious with them. Not everybody. Mm -hmm. but, but if you're this stickler and you're not gonna let it slide at all, that is going to end very poorly for you. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I want to be respectful of our time. We've got a couple minutes left. Let's, that was all super, super helpful. Um, a lot of people that are listening have already know your work. So they already, yeah, aware of what you're doing and the way that you're helping people. I'll make sure that we send more people that way. Um, but I want to point out a couple different things. So you've built this platform, which is great in and of itself. And you're teaching people and helping people, but you've also use this platform to help in different ways, right? So you have used these this army of people that want to learn, want to become more intellectually honest, want to be better at, you know, uh, seeing these issues all the way through and not just, you know, giving these bad faith arguments. You've built this this big audience and now you're saying, "Hey, how can we help the world?" Mm -hmm. So how have you done that? I mean, there's there's been some really key ways that you've done that through different uh, situations and circumstances and disasters that have happened last year. How have you uh, enabled this army of people to do good in the world over the past few months? Mm. I, I found that people actually want to help. They want to be a force for change in the world. They want to do good. They sometimes lack the, they don't, uh, they don't always have the opportunity to do that. Um, it's, it's difficult to spend a lot of your day, like vetting opportunities and seeking out all these things. But if you're presented with a great opportunity to sit, to make a difference for somebody, my experience has been that the vast majority of people want to help hmm. if they're just given the opportunity. So I've done a number of things. One is we've had a couple of, uh, really incredible, uh, Vedmo challenges where we have sent, um, you know, one, one to a family who really needed housing while their daughter was getting um, a bone marrow transplant. They didn't have the out-of-pocket money to be able to pay for housing near the, near the hospital out of state where they were going to have to live for three months. So in a day, um, my governor community sent that family $300,000. 
Incredible. Um, which is incredible. And they will not have to worry about, you know, paying for housing or paying for medical bills as a result of that. Um, we've done that for another person that I know who um, had, you know, I'll spare you all the gory details for the sake of time, but also very, very difficult family circumstances sent them $300,000 in a day. Um, we decided just collectively as a community that we are going to uh, raise money to relieve medical debt through, a, to, through an organization that buys it and forgives it. Um, instead of buying it to collect on it. And so the money that we raised for that was able to forgive $147 million medical debt for over 74,000 people in the United States, which to me is just, I, I want to weep thinking about the 74,000 families getting a letter in the mail saying your debt has been paid. And you have no, no obligation on this. You're not suffering any negative tax consequences, negative credit consequences, like literally go in peace. Your debt has been paid. The, the idea of like 74,000 people getting those letters is just incredibly moving to me. So I, I, I won't talk ad nauseum, but those are just a few examples of things that when you present somebody with a, an opportunity to do good and they feel as though their small contribution can actually make a difference and you make it easy for them to make a difference this kind of this is the incredible power of the tool social media how somebody just literally opening an app on their phone and typing in some numbers and sending somebody five dollars that when you get enough people to do that that it yeah. can literally change somebody's life in a day that is the incredible power of social media. Can you give, it's fine if you don't want to for whatever reason, but 147 million forgiven, how much money did it take to get there? Because I want people to also see there's a whole other side of this, like this industry where very little money, not very little, but like mm -hmm. a, a very small fraction of the cost can forgive this greater cost, which yeah. again, I mean, we could also talk for hours about the insanely ridiculous medical industry that we have and how people, I mean, we're one of the, we're, I think the only, uh, modern industrialized country in the world where 500,000 people a year go bankrupt because of medical bills. Like that mm -hmm. is, that is so, that's a different kind of weeping. That's like, mm -hmm. how are we doing this to people? How are we strapping people down to the point where they have to declare bankruptcy because they had a problem with their thyroid or they got an infection mm -hmm. or this something that they weren't planning on at all. So for, to forgive $147 million. Like what did that take? Mm -hmm. $566,000. Insane. Mm -hmm. And we were expecting, you know, normally the organization we work with has a, a ratio, a 10 to one ratio or 100 to one ratio. So we were expecting that $566,000 to forgive $56 million of medical debt, which is in and of itself incredible. Incredible. Yes. But because of circumstances on the debt market, which is where they actually buy this debt. Um, COVID has yep. created higher medical bills for people. COVID has reduced employment and so has reduced people's ability to pay the medical bills. And so the organizations holding this debt were uh, more willing to sell it at a reduced price than they might have been two years ago. Mm. So they were able to get much better margins on the debt purchase. Also, because they had $566,000 to work with, they could pull these giant portfolios 
Um, if you say, Hey, I have a hundred dollars, you're not going to get the same. It's like Walmart's purchasing power. You know what I mean? Like when you have a huge amount of money, you can say, I will give you half a million dollars for this $147 million portfolio. So then what the organization does, it takes them some time to actually, there's criteria for whose debt can be forgiven. The, you know, the organization is called RIP medical debt. They have criteria of who can be forgiven. You have to be within a certain percentage of the poverty line. You have to have very little ability, projected ability to actually pay the debt yourself, or the debt has to be 5% or greater of your total, you know, income. Um, So it's not just like a bunch of billionaires getting their debt forgiven. It's people who actually need the help with debt relief. And so all that to say, they were able to go to the debt market, uh, purchase these huge portfolios of debt, and then it takes them a while to actually send out in the mail 74,000 letters. Um, But it is is incredible to think about the fact that two-thirds of bankruptcies in the United States have medical debt involvement. Two-thirds of them. It's wild. And Mm -hmm. I'm so, let's, let's end on this note. I'm so grateful for you not just seeing the potential for, you know, growing this platform and using it for good, you know, just on just sharing the posts that you do and answering the questions and, you know, explaining these things. We didn't even get to people can go look for themselves. We didn't get to like, what are the kinds of things you've tackled, but you've tackled all these interesting issues that we, that we collective humanity, we fight about all the time (laughs) and and you're bringing clarity to it, but then going above and beyond and saying, Hey, I'm going to use this community to also go the extra mile, uh, provide housing, pay the medical debt. I'm just grateful for not just your knowledge, your ability to explain these things, but also your vision for what this could be. So I'm rooting for you. I hope this continues to grow for you. I hope this continues to, you know, be something that you get to do for, you know, a long time to come because I know that I need it. We all need it. Um, Yeah, I'm just a fan. So Thank thank, thank you for all you do. Thank you. My pleasure. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for spending some time with Sharon and me on this fine day, on this fine podcast. To learn more about Sharon and all things Let's Give a Damn, visit SharonMcMahon.com. That's Sharon, M-C-M-A-H-O-N.com and Let'sGiveADamn.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. And a final reminder that you can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.